Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. If you would remain standing for our reading of the passage this morning. This morning's text is taken from Matthew chapter 2. We'll read the first half of the chapter from verse 1 to verse 12. Hear now God's word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please be seated. Lord God, we pray that you would open our eyes this morning, that we might behold wonderful things in your law. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who is sufficient for these things? There is so much at work in what Matthew presents to us in these verses. Much more than we could discuss this morning. We would be here all week. So if you're of the note-taking type, there are two passages I would encourage you to write down and and look at later this week, perhaps this afternoon, as 
and see how Matthew is using them in this chapter, even though they're not on the surface of what he says. The first of those is Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 6. Isaiah chapter 60, in the first six verses. The second of those is Psalm 72, verses 10 through 11. Psalm 72, verses 10 through 11. Both of these passages speak at length about the kings of the nations coming and bringing tribute to a son of David. And they are perhaps together responsible for the, this transformation in our imagination of three wise men into three kings. Three, of course, coming from the gifts that they bring. There's so much that could detain us in this chapter, some of which Matthew answers for us, much of which he doesn't. But our main concern as we consider this passage this morning is in the responses that come to the news of Christ's birth. What responses do we see? Matthew opened his telling of Jesus' story with a genealogy that connected us to the entire sweep of Old Testament history. And then he shifted to this zoomed-in focus on Joseph and his betrothed and an announcement from an angel and its connection to a promise in Isaiah. And as this scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven continues to bring out treasures both new and old, he changes lenses on that camera once again. And he looks at the coming of Christ on the scale of global politics. The rich tradition of reflection and romanticism that's grown up around this chapter helps it capture our attention, but sometimes obscures for us what's actually happening. What is it that's, that's going on in these interactions? In brief compass, Jerusalem, ruled by a tyrannical client king on behalf of the Romans, receives something like a state visit from some land in the east that's not named, whose delegates arrive in response to a, a heavenly sign, a, a portent that they've observed that has led them to seek one born king of the Jews. There's so much more that we want Matthew to explain to us. Who are these magi? Which country did they come from? What about that star? How does that work for it to actually fall, right, lead before the wise men. What star works that way? But he doesn't. He refuses to satisfy our curiosity about these tangential concerns. And he focuses instead on how people respond to this 
news of Christ's birth. How will they respond? What will they do as the proclamation is made that one born king of the Jews comes to them? The first thing we see in the passage is that this this news of Christ's birth elicits anxiety. That's the first response we see as the as the Magi show up, as they ask their question. It says in verse three, when Herod, the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. We don't know how long after Jesus birth they arrive. We can make a guess based on what Herod does later in the chapter, that it it may be as much as two years after Jesus' birth. But then again, Herod may just calculate a, a wide margin for error. But we can say that these magi, a word with a broad range of meaning, studied the heavens. They were steeped in astrology. And they had at least a basic familiarity with Jewish expectations of the Messiah. And they come from somewhere in the East. The assumption that there's three of them almost certainly comes from the three gifts that are named. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Matthew doesn't actually tell us how many there are. There are enough. This is a large enough company that it comes to the attention of the entire city. This is not three guys in a Honda Civic on an ancient Near Eastern road trip. This is a sizable group of people. The entire city is turned upside down. And the notion that they are kings is not something Matthew tells us, but it may not be wrong. And we could turn to those passages I mentioned, Isaiah 60, 1 through 6, Psalm 72, 2, or sorry, 10 through 11, and other places. Kings were expected to come, bringing tribute to this son of David. But when they arrive, Matthew tells us that Herod is troubled and the rest of the city also. This is an interesting word and it covers a a wide range of human emotion, which you'll see if you compare your Bible to what your neighbor has in front of them. Our English translations run the whole gamut from perturbed to terrified. And this word has that broad of a range. Perhaps we can capture some of the breadth of that spectrum with this word anxiety. It elicits a response of anxiety. So first, let's look at Herod's anxiety. On the face of it, his anxiety makes sense to us. Aside from the perplexing nature of, of recent events, there's the fact that he's supposed to be king of the region. And he's evidently not the one the Magi are looking for. Nor does he have a son who would correspond to what they are seeking. But if we stop at that surface observation, we miss some of the depth and texture 
of what Matthew describes. After all, it would be rare, but not entirely without a category. In Herod's cultural climate, for mysterious wise men from the east to to show up and proclaim that there's something special about the king or about the king's son, something glorious or terrible associated with their reign. We have examples of such things recorded, especially among the Romans. But the Herod of this chapter is the one known to us in history as, as Herod the Great. Some things about him were great. He was a good administrator. He was really fond of building projects that were generally good for the wider public. And he had a relatively lengthy reign. But he was also terrible, great in temper, great in suspicion, and great in vengeance. And this side of him is something that grew worse with his age. By this time in his life, we're near the end of his reign and he's rapidly descending into insanity and constantly suspicious of the people around him, believing that they are plotting against him. He was known to have murdered his favorite wife and two of his sons who were in line for the throne because he suddenly believed that they were orchestrating a coup. In fact, the Emperor Augustus, a one-time friend of Herod, reflecting on this side of that former friend, is known to have made this delightful pun in Greek, saying that he would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. This is the man who's troubled by the Magi's Arrival, a suspicious man, desperate to hold on to authority and to protect himself from conspiracies around every corner. And with no births in the family, powerful and wealthy foreign dignitaries come looking for the one born king of the Jews. Herod is troubled indeed. But there's also the anxiety of the Jewish leaders as the whole city also is troubled. It's it's easy enough to see why Herod might be troubled, but he's not the only one troubled by the news. Matthew says all Jerusalem with him shared in his anxiety. What could this mean? Surely the Magi's arrival is is perplexing. What could they be referring to? Why wasn't it on the evening news? Who are they looking for? Perhaps folks were unsettled at the lack of information. Why do these foreigners know more than we know? What's going on? But Herod's character was also well known. And the meaning of the news for Herod's mood was something anyone could make out. So there's also a a strong likelihood that the majority of their misgivings and worry 
were over the possible consequences of Herod's wrath and displeasure. When Herod was anxious, no one was safe. But if the city had an uneasy relationship with Herod, it it still was a relationship that usually worked. Placing many people in positions of authority and privilege that they were not likely to occupy if there's some kind of change in administration. This is especially true because wealth and connections were important in Herod's Jerusalem, much more so than competence and qualifications. Perhaps they're troubled with what this may mean for the positions that they enjoy. Neither Herod nor the people of Jerusalem, though, end their response with anxiety. For each of them, that anxiety leads to something else. So let's see also the response of hostility. The news of Christ's birth elicits hostility. We see this in verses 7 and 8. We see this in verse 12. We'll see it much more clearly in the second half of the chapter as Herod is unmasked for us. But as the implications of the news of Christ's birth are considered, that initial reaction of anxiety gives way to, or perhaps fuels, the hostility. Look at verse 6 with us. As, as Herod asks, right? Herod doesn't know. He has to call up the, the, um, the chief priests and the scribes and ask of them, where is the Christ to be born? And notice Herod understands enough of what's going on to connect the Magi's appearance searching for the king of the Jews with the birth of the Messiah, whom he refuses to call king. And he calls together groups among whom no love is lost. Herod doesn't like the chief priests. The chief priests don't like the scribes. The scribes don't like Herod. None of these people get along with one another. And so perhaps there's, there's cunning on Herod's part as he brings together two groups who hate each other to inquire of them. He's less likely to be told a fib. But notice that they're able to answer him right away. Where's the Christ to be born? Oh, that's in Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. And then they tie it together with 2 Samuel, chapter 5. Who will shepherd my people, Israel? There's some interesting things that have happened in the way they use these verses. But the main thing to see is they don't have to ask Google. They don't have to say, give us a week and we'll get back to you. Hey, guys, where's the Christ to be born? In Bethlehem. That's what the prophet said. Motion to adjourn. Let's get out of here. They know straight away. That'll become important in a moment. But this hostility toward Jesus' birth 
is grounded in Christ's rule. Herod is a pretender imposed on the people by a dominating foreign power. Jesus is king by right. He's not born to be king. He is king when he is born. And so Herod must oppose him. Here, his hostility is covert. The Magi may or may not be duped by Herod's suggestion. I think they probably know what's up. They come to the king seeking one born king, and he has no idea what they're talking about and has no idea where to find him. Sure, he wants to go and worship him. And yet Herod tries to cover his hostility with this veneer of genuine interest, of desire to worship, of seeking the same thing they are seeking. His hostility at first is covert. We'll see in the second half of the chapter that his hostility is laid bare, but it's laid bare first in the dream that's mentioned in verse 12, a divine warning to the wise men. Don't go back to Herod. In the second half of the chapter, which we'll consider next week, he starts on a course of action to try and destroy Jesus. But don't miss what this part of the chapter tells us. That he sets on that determined course knowing that this is the Christ. Not trying to suppress a possible rival who may stir up trouble along the way. Somebody else who's making overtures to Rome. But the one who has been born in fulfillment of the promises of the prophets. To whom foreign nations are bringing tribute. The hope of the Old Testament is born in Bethlehem. And knowing this, Herod will oppose him with everything he has. But Herod's hostility is not the only hostility. It's difficult to read the response of the chief priests and the scribes here. But by the end of the gospel, Matthew will make clear that the entire Jerusalem establishment, chief priests and scribes and elders of the people, will take a position like Herod, knowing who Jesus is, and yet colluding with the Romans to put him to death. Don't underestimate that hostility in their response to Jesus. But immediately what we see is not 
the Jerusalem leader's response of hostility. Instead, we see a response of apathy. There's a glaring omission in the text that's easy to miss. Look at verse 4 and 5. Herod assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And as we mentioned, they don't even have to pull out their phones. They know. They know exactly where Christ will be born. They've heard the news. They know why Herod's asking. Whether or not the Magi are there in the room at the time. The whole city has been turned upside down. By these foreigners who come asking, where is he born king of the Jews? And now Herod asks them, where's the Christ to be born? Just curious, if you've got a minute while you're here. Then look at verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Who's the they in verse 9? It's the Magi. It's the wise men. Whatever the size of their company, three or three hundred, they go. And no one goes with them. To put this in perspective, Bethlehem is six miles from Jerusalem. People arrive looking for the one born king of the Jews. That's connected to prophecy with the birth of the Messiah. That whole group of people heads to Bethlehem. And the people who knew exactly where the Christ would be born can't even be bothered to put on their shoes for a two-hour walk to see if these things could be true. To see if the prophecy has been fulfilled. From the most honored and well-studied rabbi to the lowest clerk. These guys are not dumb. Even if Herod is trying to keep secrets and keep this all under wrap, they know who showed up and what they're asking and why Herod puts this question to them. But not a one of them has any interest in spending half a day to check things out. Could it be that they are so afraid of offending Herod? Is their seeming apathy driven by a fear of man? Are they just worn down? By so many appearances of of false Christs. Here we go again. It's another Tuesday. Somebody's going to be disappointed when they get to Bethlehem. Are they so overcome with cynicism that they refuse to believe that it could be true? 
their anxiety, their fear gives way to a lack of interest that defies our belief. The news of the birth of Christ elicits anxiety wrapped up with fear. It elicits hostility as he is actively opposed by those who will not bow the knee. It elicits Nothing. Who cares? It's not important. Let's go shopping. We need to pick up some stuff for dinner. But it also elicits joy. And from the most unexpected source, these magi come from who knows where, how far away. And the word that the ESV translates wise men, we've heard magi, that carries a negative tone most of the times it's used. These guys were astrologers. They studied the movement of the stars and they see something in the heavens And they have enough Jewish friends or know enough about the world that they connect what they see to hope of a king of the Jews. And so they come. And they are the ones who bear witness to the world of the birth of Christ. And they come with joy. They come with gifts. They offer him Worship. And they don't rest until they find him. If you look at verse 10, the way it's phrased, it's as though Matthew has piled up words for joy and words for very much and just pasted them all together. And our English translations are are humorous as you try and see them make sense of that. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced with joy very much a lot, greatly, and more. As he he struggles to capture in language the depth of their exultation at finding this king. So much more to talk about. So many things left unanswered. Matthew, tell us more about this. Tell us about the mechanics of that star. And was it a comet? Or was it a constellation? Or was it a supernova? Matthew doesn't care. He moves on. Tell us more about Herod. Tell us more about the Magi. Tell us what it was like. For them to encounter Jesus and then go back to pagan lands. Matthew can't be detained. He's going to keep moving, telling us the story of Jesus. But this section of the chapter leaves us with the question, how do you respond? 
to the news of the birth of Christ. Because if he is who the Gospels say he is, then he makes claims on you. Do you feel threatened by that? Is it more important to you to to hold on to what you think you have than to submit to the king of the universe? Are you troubled? Are you filled with anxiety at the thought of what he might require of you? So that you fear to grow closer to him. Lest he ask of you something you don't want to give up. Do you respond with with disinterest? I'm glad other people get excited about that. I'm glad other people spend, spend their time studying those chapters and connecting those passages. Perhaps you find yourself like the scribes who know the scriptures, can rattle off a passage at a moment's notice, but whose curiosity ends there. Or will you respond with joy, with worship? We must be careful to avoid creating dichotomies that Matthew does not. Because we read this chapter and it's easy to set up one group over against Another to, to draw lines between the Jews who reject him and the Gentiles who come to him with worship. Between the, the common people among whom Jesus is born and the Jerusalem leaders who can't be bothered to walk out to Bethlehem to see what's up. Between the country and the city It it is true that there are surprising and ironic reversals along those lines. As Jesus is born in this little village that's only even on the map because David was born there. But Matthew and the other Gospels make it very clear that, that these categories and these dichotomies are not absolute. Jesus is both accepted and rejected by Gentiles. We see the disinterest of the rulers here, and yet Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea will care for his body after the crucifixion. Indeed, as as church history bears out, the leader of the known world will one day bow the knee to Christ. And the Roman Empire will be turned upside down. The most important dichotomy in this chapter that's maintained throughout is the response to Jesus. Will you bow the knee? You are neither condemned nor excused 
by what group of people or what stripe of society you align yourself with. Because this is a pressingly individual question. From the city, from the country, doesn't matter. Will you bow the knee? Are you in a position of power or never been in charge of anything in your life? Doesn't matter. Will you bow the knee? Will you worship the one born king of the Jews? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news of Christ's birth. We pray that by your Spirit's work in our hearts, you would grant that we would respond, not like Herod, not like the leaders, not like the people of his hometown who later will recognize him and despise him. But may we be like the Magi who seek him out, who respond in worship and present to him our gifts and offerings. Lord, may his birth be to us the hope of the Gentiles, the announcement of good news. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.